If you've been enriched by the content on the podcast this year, would you consider making a year-end gift to help support the ongoing ministry of Think Biblically? Your support will make a difference and will allow us to continue providing this resource to you and to others at no cost. To make a gift online, visit giving.biola.edu. That's giving.biola.edu. And be sure to designate your gift to the Think Biblically podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Have a wonderful holiday season. Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here with our, our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Morse, who is the fa- founder and director of the Ruth Institute. Uh, she has a, Her background is in economics, has a PhD from the University of Rochester, and has taught at both George Mason and at Yale uh, until leaving that to found the Ruth Institute, uh, and she functions as its full-time sort of face and director uh, today. She's a widely sought-after speaker, media expert, a uh, handful of terrific books. You may, If you listen to our podcast regularly, you may recall we had her on recently for her new, newer book called The Sexual State. I want to talk to her today about an, a, a book that's been out for a while, but is really important stuff. It's got just, just so much insightful stuff that I want our listeners to get access to. So the book is entitled Love and Economics, and it turns Hillary Clinton on her head a bit by suggesting that uh, it takes a family to raise a village, not the, not the other way around. So, Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for being with us and for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, I'm glad to be on your show. Thank you. So, tell us a little bit about, and I, I suspect that there's a, a bit of a backstory behind the book Love and Economics. Uh, so tell us a bit about your, your personal story that prompted you to write the book. Yes, as you mentioned, my doctorate's in economics, and I taught at Yale University, and I taught at George Mason University, and I was a tenured professor at George Mason, and never really had any thought of doing anything relating to the family or whatever, but I did want to become a mother. I wanted to have a family, and it I had it all worked out to where I was going to get pregnant at a particular time so that I wouldn't have to leave my classroom very much, and, you know, I would just, I just had it all worked out. And then, of course, uh, God intervened with four years of infertility, uh, which, you know, of course, turned everything upside down and brought me, actually brought me back to the faith. That was actually the crisis mm-hmm. of faith that brought me, uh, brought me back to the practice of the faith. But... Um, what we were, my husband and I resolved our infertility by uh, adopting a little boy from a Romanian orphanage. And this was back in 1991, right after the fall of the mm-hmm. Berlin Wall. We were among the first people who uh, adopted East mm-hmm. European orphans. So we adopted a little boy, and then six months later, we gave birth to a little girl. So these two children are three years apart in chronological age, but very different in their background. So our little boy... Uh, everything was a struggle for him because he had been in an orphanage, minimal care orphanage, for two and a half years. And then our daughter was born the usual way and everything was just kind of easy, you know. And so this um, confluence of events, you might say, um, made it clear to me that children really truly need their parents and they need their own parents wherever they possibly can have that. Because my husband and I are just sitting here trying to figure out which end is up, what to do. You know, nothing in my econ background prepared me for what we had to do. My husband's an engineer, so even less prepared, you know. So we're looking at this whole thing going, what in the world is going on here, you know? And, and 
my my plan, my my brilliant plan of putting children in daycare, that just evaporated, right? And, and I mean, I still tried to do it, but it just became clear that was ridiculous. And and so we realized that parents do an enormous amount for their children without even realizing it. Um, you might say it's natural or instinctive, you know, that we do all these things. And uh, because we had to kind of plan and deliberately install stuff into our little boy mm-hmm. uh, to make up for what he didn't have, um, we, we became conscious of things that people aren't normally conscious of. And it's just, it's an astonishing thing what parents do. And so I became convinced as an economist that the way the society was going toward turning everything into a series of contracts between consenting adults, that this is simply not going to work where children are involved. And of course, children are always involved because this is the way we come into the world as children. You know, it's like, this is a pretty big thing to overlook. Um, and, and so that's the backstory to love and economics. Yeah. yeah. Now, let's, let's be a little bit more specific on this. You know, I suspect for most of our listeners, the connection between love and economics is not obvious. not readily obvious, no, no, or, or, or intuitively right, obvious. Right. Uh, so, what is, what exactly is the connection that you're making between those two so, in your book? So, the, the connection that I'm making, Scott, is that economists are counting on love already operating in the background. Economist, as an economist, uh, and most people who do economics, you're counting on people. Uh, being able to cooperate with others, wanting to cooperate with others, keeping their promises, doing what they say they're going to do, not shoplifting at every possible opportunity, you know, having some kind of sense of right and wrong and reciprocity, basic reciprocity. And the whole market is based on reciprocity and promise keeping. And in dealing with a, you know, a, a, a little boy who is at serious risk for some serious psycho stuff, he's fine now, by the way, let me mm-hmm. hasten to add, he's 30 years old and he's doing fine. But, but we saw that it's not a, a, a sure thing that a person would develop a conscience. But those, so those deficits were apparent from, yeah. from the start. Yeah, yes. And if you, if you don't get that job done, of, of giving a person a sense of right and wrong, a sense of regard for other people and so on. You will not have a functioning free market. You cannot have a free economy. And so this book, really, Scott, I was trying to talk to my fellow economists and say, look, we cannot just take the language of the market in free exchange and uh, and upload it into the family and talk about the family like all we got to do is... Uh, have the adults agree on everything and everything will be fine. That simply cannot work. <laughs> and that, that was that was the back story. That's why I wrote it and so, what I was trying to get across. So to it sounds like sounds like you're spelling out a lot of preconditions for not, not, not only responsible adults, but for fl- flourishing economies. Absolutely. Uh, that's exactly that, that we that's just exactly. take that we just take for granted. Take it for granted. Right. Uh, so without mom and dad in the background getting this done, there isn't going to be a banking system. There isn't going to be rule of law and contracts. You know, you're going to have chaos because you're going to have people who do whatever they can get away with. And you don't have enough cops. You don't have enough social service infrastructure to deal with a whole society full of people who have no conscience, you know. And in the years since I wrote that book, I, this book was published in 2001. In the years since it's been published, oh, my goodness, things have just gotten even worse yeah. with more yeah. and more young people being more and more damaged by various kinds of family breakdown and neglect. Now, in, in the book, especially in the beginning part, 
You make a big deal about babies being, as you put it, depend, dependent, helpless, and needy. Yep. Um, what What do we learn about society and about culture from the way we come into the world? Well, I think as Christians, it's a very interesting thing that God has chosen to bring us into the world helpless. That's a, that's a profound thing when you really think about it, that we're born helpless and if we're lucky enough to die of old age, we go out helpless, you know. And so, so when we, if we conceive of society as being something that uh, adult capable people do, that's great. But we got these people who are legitimately dependent, you know, and and who make legitimate demands upon us. And I think it's a, a an icon. What goes on in the family is an icon for what goes on between God the Father and creation, you know, mm-hmm. um, and. Therefore, we're learning how to be in relationship with other people. We're also learning how to be in relationship with God because God is the trustworthy, loving Father who's in command of the situation. We don't have to freak out because we can't control everything, you know. And that's a huge part of a person's faith journey is to figure out Mm -hmm. not to freak out every Mm -hmm. time you're not in control. So let's let's, let's be a little more specific and connect that to to our economic life. Okay. What, what do what do babies learn by the nurture of their parents that is crucial for them to be, you know, good, good, health, healthy, flourishing participants in an economic system? Well, I, I, I'm gonna I'm going to I'm gonna answer you, but begin by saying, learn is not quite the right word okay. because we, what, what's, what, what's, what's happening. <laughs> What's happening in the mother-child relationship is something that's pre-verbal, it's pre-cognitive, right? And so it's not like you're sitting there explaining something. You know, when we think of learn, mm-hmm. often we have that sense. But but what happens is the baby is crying, the baby is needy, the baby needs something, and they can't solve the problem themselves. They're wet, they're hungry, whatever it is. And they cry and mommy comes, and mommy takes care of it, and baby goes, ah, and just kind of relaxes Mm -hmm. into the care of mommy, Um, or daddy comes, or mommy comes and takes care of the baby, and daddy comes and puts his arms around mommy and takes care of her and makes her feel supported and loved Mm -hmm. and so on. And so what the baby comes to learn is that the world is safe. The world is reasonable. The world is filled with love, and other people matter. And the way you can tell that is by looking at what happens to the child who doesn't have anybody come. The attachment disordered child, Mm -hmm. the foster child, the orphanage child. You know, these kids, this is what we learned that we wouldn't have learned if we hadn't had our son, you know, that that they cry and nobody Mm -hmm. comes. And so what do they do? Well, they, they... you know, they start rocking their heads, they start banging their heads, they start stimulating themselves, but they, they... block out the idea of their minds. They block out the, the, the possibility that people actually matter. They don't really believe other people matter. And that's what you have to kind of step into, and that's the void you have to fill as a parent in that situation, that, that hey, I'm coming, and it's going to be all right. You know, some, Scott, it's, sometimes these kids, they won't let you hold them. That's not normal. Yeah. That yeah. is not normal. Sometimes they don't cry. And people think, oh, what a good baby. They never cry. That's not normal. That's a bad sign. That's not normal at all. You yeah. know, a baby should cry and feel okay about crying, you know. Um, so so it's all the, the conscience development 
is all taking place at the pre-verbal level and it's somehow mysteriously um, into the tissues of the body. It affects brain development. I talk about that in my later book, Smart Sex. Mm -hmm. It actually affects brain development and your ability to intuit other people's mm -hmm. um, uh, emotions and things like that. There's, there's actually something called uh, institutional autism. Which kids develop, which means, which means you've got kids with autistic symptoms, and the thought is that they developed those systems because nobody was responding to them. Really? Yeah, it's and they and the the doctors discovered it in these Eastern European orphanages. You know, whole rooms full of kids that don't look at you. So you know, so it's it, it's yeah. it's profound. You know, and so I wrote Love and Economics partly to convince the economists that you know that they needed to pay attention. But also, I wanted to say to other women, when you are holding your baby, you are doing something profound. You are doing something so pro-social. Don't let anybody talk you out of that and tell yeah. you you're an idiot because you're staying home with your baby. No, don't, don't allow that, you know. Well, I can see, you know, too, I think, you know, when we had young children, I mean, we had, we, we had three under the age of five and you know we went we went years without getting a full night's sleep. That's and, right. That's you know, right. And that was yeah, we was, we finally quit whining about it because right. it, it was par for the course. That's right. That's um, right. No one wants to hear it. No other parent wants to hear about right. your sleep deprivation. But we we realized that you know we sort of viewed this often as just being in survival mode. And once you know, and man, once if we get them out of diapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be home free. Right. And we turned out that wasn't true at all. <laughs> but I think I think there are there are a lot of young families that sort of look at that those first two or three years as if I can just survive it. Mm hmm And so what would what would you say to someone who looks at it like that? Uh and yeah, they need to survive it, that's true. Yeah, yes, but, right. But there's but a I lot of really important stuff going on that's during exactly, those years. That's exactly right. And I will tell you a funny story about when this book was published. It was published by Spence Publishing, which company is no longer in existence. And the editor of that, the guy who edited it, was a guy called Mitch Muncy, who's still out and about doing various um, doing various um, nonprofit uh, development kinds of things. And he would come home from work after working on this book and say to his wife, oh, I love you so much. I'm so grateful for all you're doing for for our family. And she looked at him and said, I don't know what this book is that you're working on, but I really like this book. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I would say just just enter into it. Enter into it. Revel in it. You know, okay. And, and, and that's, I think, part of the, um, the tax that careerism has placed on women is that we think, well, the right thing to do is to get back to work and not miss a beat and not let motherhood affect my career. That's crazy. That is crazy. And that's why I gave, I mean, I yeah. finally had to give it up, you know. Yeah. You will en enjoy your kids. Enjoy them, you know, and, and you won't regret it. Well, and I think the, rec the recognition that from the very start, you are building into them this notion that the world's a safe place. That's that, right. That people can be trusted. That's right. And yeah. that they matter. And that they're important. That yeah. they matter. And, you know, that's how God wants us to feel. You know, God, in each and every one of us matters tremendously to God. He made us. He made us as an act of pure love. He redeemed us as an act of pure love. He did all of that out of love for us. And he created the world such that he wants our participation in love. He could have made each person as, as an adult, 
You know, we could have all started off that way, but that's not what he did. He he made it so everybody starts out helpless, yeah. you know, and I think this is something we need to to meditate on. It's, a, it's one of those mysteries of the mm-hmm. faith that you can ponder for a lifetime and never get to the bottom of it. So, so part of what you're arguing, I think, is that sort of the reverse, you know, the Beatles put it that money can't buy me love. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like what you're suggesting is that love in infancy is one of the necessary things to, to, to pave the road for a person's prosperity well, that's on. true. Is that's that true? true. That, that, that's, that's partly true. Yes, that, that having a solid foundation in your family life uh, certainly enhances your future earnings abil- earning ability. Okay, now there I am sounding like a social science person. That's okay. And not like a mom. Oh, no, that's what I, well, that's what I asked you. <laughs> right, right, right. right. And, and that's certainly true. The, that correlation is very strong, Scott. You know, and, and in fact, I would go even further and say that the love between your parents and the love of your parents for you, that is the foundation of the development of the personality. Every person's personality development is built upon love. You know, your, your parents' love for you, your parents' love for each other, which you can see by looking at how family breakdown affects mm-hmm. child development in all kinds of ways. You know, so, that's a profound experience to have your parents reject each other or so, never be bonded to each other. So spell out a little bit further the, the impact of parents loving each other on the child's yes. sense of trust and safety yes, in the yes. world. So I will tell you, in, in, in love and economics, I hadn't gotten that figured out yet. You know, in love and economics, I was trying to tell the economists, look, contract is not enough. Because babies can't be contracting parties, so we have to treat them differently than, mm-hmm. uh, than like they were contract. And also, you can't think of marriage as a contract because it's more than that, you know. So that was kind of as far as I got in love and economics. But in in the years since then, it's just become really clear that um, when when parents love one another, that that's the foundation. If if you th- if you think about just the physicality of where babies come from. We're, we're brought into being by an act of love. That's God's deal. That's God's plan, right? Is that an act of human love brings forth new life. And every, I would say, and at the Ruth Institute we say, every human being has the birthright of being born as a result of an act of love, right? And I know you're concerned about bioethics issues and so on Talk and so forth, you know, too. same sort of thing. But I, I wasn't thinking about that in 2001, trust me. But 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 what what you can see is that Every step you take away from, the, the, we, we, we say that mom and dad married to each other for a lifetime is the gold standard for child development and for child outcomes. And every step you take away from that kind of permanence, you can see harm to the child. So if it's a further step and it's a more profound or earlier step, it's, it's, it's tougher on the child. Um, but I would go even further than that and say that the issue isn't simply uh, child outcomes, you know, they don't do as well in school or whatever. The issue is an issue of justice to the child, the child's access to both of their parents, the child's um, understanding of their identity, of who they are. Every time a, a married couple divorces and then remarries, that's very disruptive to a child's sense of identity, very disruptive. We have no idea the chances we're taking and the way we're scrambling somebody's social development by continuous divorce or remarriage. You know, it kind of makes you think that Jesus knew what he was talking about 
back in Matthew yeah. 19? What a, what a concept. You know, the Son yeah. of God so, knew so what he was talking about. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. who would have thought that? Anyway. So, so the idea that uh, children are resilient. Baloney. They'll, they'll move Baloney. Complete, that's the number one lie of the sexual revolution. That's the lie adults tell themselves so that they can do what they want, right? Because if all it was, if all sex was, was a, a relationship between two consenting adults, and that's what we all want it to be, right? That's what the whole culture wants to be, just two consenting adults. Uh, if that's all it is, well, then we get to do anything we want. But if this third party keeps popping up, and this third party has legitimate demands on us, well, you know, then we got, we got constraints. We don't like constraints. No, 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 no. So the way, we, you know, we either kill the baby... You know, that's what abortion's all about. Or um, we say it doesn't matter. The child will be fine. It'll be fine. Me, as an adult, I'm a delicate flower. If I don't have my sexual satisfaction and my relationship needs met, I'm going to go to pieces. But that two-year-old, no problem. They'll be fine. <laughs> you know, that's a, what we're doing. A bit ironic. Uh, you, you, could, you could say. But see, see, the thing is, the child... The two parents are half of who the child is. And so when mom says, you know, I'm divorcing your dad. I still love you, but I don't love your dad anymore. Your dad and I don't love each other anymore. Um, that makes no sense from the child's perspective. Because you're saying you love me, but you, but you don't love half of who I am. That doesn't add up, mom. But, of course, a five-year-old can't articulate right. that. So yeah. they're left alone to try to deal with that. And I think that's why you see all the bad outcomes for the kids, because we, you know, we've just left them in this sort of puddle uh, that makes no sense, mm -hmm. you know, and and they're on their own trying to figure it out. Now, Jennifer, you may, you maintain that many of the virtues necessary for flourishing in in our economic system are the virtues that are learned within those first few years of life at home. Okay? You've mentioned safety, trust. Security, that you matter. What, what what are some of the other virtues that are necessary for kind of economic flourishing that kids pick up at home? Well, uh, self control. Okay. Right. Uh, you don't just grab whatever you see that you want. Okay. Um, reciprocity. Now, economists make a lot out of reciprocity. Everything's exchange, but that's in a sense one of the more superficial forms of reciprocity when you get right down to it. Um, so the ability to, to give and take is extremely important in the economy. That, that's what the mm -hmm. economy is, is people giving and taking and doing what they say they're going to do. Um, so prom promise keeping. Promise keeping, absolutely. Yeah. Promise keeping, doing what you say you're going to do, you know, truth, basic mm -hmm. truthfulness, um, follow through. Um, a lot of those things are learned inside the family, and they're and like I said before, the whole the whole conscience development is very fascinating. I think yeah. and that was one of the most fascinating things that we learned um, about about child development because you know really you don't want to be doing rewards and punishments. See, you don't want you don't really right. want the world to be based completely on incentives. You want most people most of the time to do the right thing because they just it just wouldn't enter their mind to do the wrong thing. That's what you really are going for. Yeah, and I think sometimes we forget that you know, flourishing economies are actually based on or premised on 
the participants having reasonably well-developed consciences. Exactly. That's exactly uh, right. And that if they don't, you know, you get some of the, you know, aberrations that we've seen in, in other parts of the world. So here's my, my question. What, what happened if those virtues aren't learned at home mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason? Uh, what, what happens? Well, you, you know, the, in the extreme case, if a child literally has no conscience, it's very hard to install one after the fact, <laughs> you know. And you, you see that if you look at something like um, juvenile justice, what, what happens to kids who end up in the juvenile justice system? Well, it's really expensive to take care of them. And when you're done taking care of them, maybe you've brought them up to normal level mm-hmm. functioning. Maybe you have overcome the deficit that they started off with, but but you're investing a lot just to break even, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a thing. So I, one time I looked it up, Scott, this has been, this is probably 10 years ago from these numbers, but to, for a child to be in the California Youth Authority for a year was at that time about $48,000 a year. You could send a child to, the taxpayer spent at Berkeley, sixteen thousand a year. Mm-hmm. You know, so at the end of the a year at Berkeley or four years at Berkeley, you know, you've got you, you've got a PhD or something. And, you know, you've mm-hmm. got somebody who's really um, capable of contributing and has really learned a lot and so on and so forth. At the end of a year in the California Youth Authority, maybe you're breaking even if you're lucky. You know, and and maybe not. You yeah. know, maybe you've taken an axe murder and turned them into a car thief. You know, that, it's, it's just a whole different scale of of um, of what counts as progress at that point. And and you've maintained throughout the book that divorce is really tough on a kid's ability yes. to develop those virtues. Yes, yes, I, I do talk about divorce in this this first book. I, I talk about single parenthood. I also talked about too much daycare back in two thousand one. I was concerned about too much daycare. And that you seems almost that, yeah. silly. It seems almost quaint now to be yeah. worried about that in the face of all the other. Now you refer to that as the institutionalizing of childhood. That's right. That's right. That's exactly um, what it is. Yeah, it, because it, it takes away the personal nature of the bond and of the care, and not all children do well in daycare. That's that's a fact, you know. And I was socialized into my whole educational plan with the idea that daycare is the thing to do. It'll be fine. The kids are resilient. They'll be fine if you put them in there. They can be in daycare for as long as you are at work. It'll be fine. And, you know, some kids get away with it, but not all of them do, you know. And so in in the years since, I've given lots of talks to college students and law students and things, and I tell them, you know, you guys, you cannot build your whole life around the idea that all of your kids will do fine in daycare because maybe they won't, and you don't want to be needing your income to pay your mortgage right. when really somebody needs to stay home with Junior who's having temper tantrums at age four, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's just, that's that's part of what it means to be a parent is that you have to be available to deal with those things, you know, and, and the whole institutional concept doesn't really allow for that. Now, you, you seem in the book, and I think in, in your other work, too, that I've, I've picked up, you seem particularly troubled by the growth and the number of kids being raised without dads yeah. today. Uh, why is that? And what, what is it that dads do that moms can't? Well, um, th- this, is a, this is obviously a very important question. Um, and I think that 
if you look at the development of the child in a stable, loving family, what happens? How, what's the natural course of that? The natural course of it is that mom is there in the early days, and there's nothing equal about any of it. Okay, you just got to get the equality program out of your head, okay? Because the baby wants mommy, <laughs> and mommy wants the baby, you know, and there, there's, a, there's a bond and there's a thing going on between them that's profound. But the older the child gets, the less it needs to be mom, and the more the father's role comes into its own, because the father's now kind of escorting the child out the door, mm-hmm. you know, and here's how you manage the world. And, yep, you scraped your knee, but, you know, you're going to be fine, you know. And so it's, it's more of a, of a posture that, that mothers and fathers have a tendency to have, you know. And you don't, want to, you don't want to say all moms do this or all dads do that. That's yeah, not the point. But, but there is something about the masculine presence um, that he doesn't have to do that much. I mean, you know, honestly, the dad voice can calm the whole household. Right? With just a few words. And doggone it, it seems unfair when you're the mom and you've been struggling to get them to all calm down and dad just walks through the door and everybody's silent. You know, it's like, this is not fair. But it is reality. It is reality. And there's nothing wrong with it. So, so in, in view of how important dads are, uh, what do you say to the, the, the single mom who's a widow, for example, who's... She's doing the best she can after her husband's right. died, or maybe she was married to a guy who who walked out on her, right. you know, or, you know, or somebody like that, um, or or to the stay-at-home dad. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We have this. You know, you brought up this question of fatherlessness, but I think it, in the years since I've written this book, I've realized that if you're not careful, the term fatherlessness covers way too many situations, right? So. If, if you're fatherless because your dad died, that's a whole different thing than if you're fatherless because your dad walked out or you're fatherless because your mom had to throw him out because he was a terrible guy or, you know, mm-hmm. or he's a sperm donor that right. everybody you know, never knew. It's complete. Those yeah. are very different situations. Um, and so fatherless, you know, actually nobody's really fatherless. Everybody has a mother and a father. So sometimes I'm inclined to say unmarried parents. Okay. Um, or, you know, because that's very different from the widowed situation. True. You know, the, when, the, when the father dies, um, his photos will be on the wall. He's still part of the family in memory. Mm-hmm. You know, his memory is a cherished part of the family. That's completely different from mom kicking him out and tearing all the photos out of the photo album. I mean, and I, I've heard of people doing that, you know. Um, and sometimes it's because he's so terrible, and sometimes it's because she's come unglued, you know. Mm-hmm. And from the child's perspective, you think that's not different? Of course, it's hugely yeah, different. that's a big difference. It's huge, yeah. There, oh, there's so much so much to talk about here. Oh, well, thank but you. Me, I'm glad you like the book, oh, Scott. Oh, it was just great. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you sort of one last question. You argue in the book that government has taken over a lot of the functions of the family. Yes. Uh, what What do you mean by that? Give me Give me an example or two, and then what's What's the implication? So, of that? so yes. And when I wrote this book, I was closer to my libertarian free market days. Okay, and so I was trying to explain to my economist friends that um, the government taking over this function is not a good thing. Um, and 
and I had hoped that my free market buddies would, would go, oh yeah, we, you know, we don't like the government delivering the mail, we shouldn't allow the government to be feeding children, you know. Um, but I, I couldn't quite get through to a lot of those fellows. But, but, but anyway, um, among the things that the government has taken over, uh, simply public schools, m- mandatory, uh, state-sponsored, day-in, day-out schooling. That's not normal in the course of human history, okay? Um, okay, set that aside. We all ex- accept that we, kids are supposed to leave the home every day and go to school with other children their age and not be with their families. Okay, we accept that. But do, does the government really have to feed them? Do you, do you really have to say free breakfast for every child regardless of income? You know, these are the kinds of proposals that you hear, and it's always couched in terms of, um, well, the children need their nutrition, and if we, leave it, if we leave it to chance, they won't be fed. But what you do, the cost of doing that, is that the parents' bonding that takes place over food, that is, that's taken away. The responsibility, the personal development that takes place, because you have to take care of your child, uh, you have to grow up and rise to the occasion. That's being taken away from people. So there are little things and there are big things, I think, that the state is taking over. And I just think we have to understand that parents are not just delivering calories to the, to the body and keeping the body warm and making sure the kids are medicated. Parents are also building a relationship with the child. And the government simply can't do that. Okay. That's helpful. Well, let me... Let me... Throw one. I said that was one last one, but I got I got one more last <laughs> question. What What do you say to the family that says we we have to have two incomes to to make it? Uh, we we just can't. We we'll, we'll never stay afloat financially if we don't have both of us, both parents working. You know, I can't I can't speak to each person's situation because there are lots of. It, it could be true. You know, I don't know. But what I would say to them, if if that's really true, is to in your mind at least, make the priority the family. Maybe you can't spend the time that you want to, but in your mind, when you're at work, think about, I'm working for the sake of my family. I'm not working for my ego. Mm-hmm. I'm not working for my career. I'm not working for my employer. I'm working for my family. And I think one thing that happens to people is as you allow that thought to percolate, it changes what you choose to do and not do. Yeah. And your yeah. idea of what you need changes. And maybe we could move to a smaller house. And maybe we could let the car go another couple of years before we replace it. And, and, and so on, you know. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't presume to tell people, oh, you're doing the wrong thing. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't presume. And every family is different and so on. But I, but I would say to everybody, make your family your priority. Well, I think that's a very appropriate place to stop here with that. So Jennifer, thank you so much for just, there's so much wisdom here, so much insight. And it's not just at the theoretical dimension, it's stuff that you've lived personally, just from your own family experience and family background from raising the kids that God gave you. So this has been just so insightful. So I want to commend to our listeners the book, Love and Economics. Uh, It's great stuff. It's available through the Ruth Institute website. Um, and just Google Ruth Institute. It will be the first thing that pops up, uh, and you can order it. It's great, it's great stuff and really insightful stuff. We, I think we've got a lot more to talk about, and we'll have to do that again on, right. on another time. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. 
This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Jennifer Morse, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed our conversation today, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.